Hope you guys are doing well, enjoying your summer. I know we have a number of people on vacation and even a couple of our staff members, Jeff and Craig, are on vacation this week. And so uh, hopefully you guys get some time to enjoy that as well. I do, I do want you to let you know a couple missions trips we have coming up that, that I want you to be praying about. I mentioned, I think very briefly last week, that I'm going to be in Tanzania August uh, Ten, what are those dates? August 13th and 20th. Those are the Sundays. Uh, but there's a team from here, 15 of us, uh, will be going to Tanzania, being a part of the medical missions outreach there in Tanzania. And so we'll be gone from August 10th through August 20th. Uh, so we'll talk more about that. We'll be praying over that team next Sunday uh, before we leave. And, and then, and so be, be, be praying for us. And then we also, you might not be aware of this, we also have a team in September that's going to Boston. Uh, there's a group of eight or so that Jeff is leading uh, that will be do, doing some street evangelism and evangelism in, in college campuses there, working with Mike Renault. So you might remember Mike. He's been here a time or two. Uh, Mike is out of Kansas City, was a friend of mine, and was at Midtown Baptist Temple and went to Boston to plant a church, Living Faith Boston. And so he's done that. And, and so we have, again, a group of eight that are going to go up there and work, work with him, help him invite people to his church and that sort of thing. And that'll be September, what is it? I was going to say 11th through 16th. So Kurt's on that trip, September 6th through 11th. Uh, again, we'll pray for that team before they leave as well. But just want you to be aware of a couple of the things we have. Summers of, uh, in one way, you know, summer, we try to slow things down just a little bit and we don't have Wednesday night and that sort of thing. But in many ways, summer's a very busy time. You know, a busy time for families in good ways, for vacations and that sort of thing. But we also try to do, you know, missions trips uh, during that time as well. So, so be praying for those. But if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, ask you to turn to Acts chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. We covered the first 36 verses of this chapter last Sunday. So we took a big, big chunk and we got through, uh, you know, a good portion of Steve, Stephen's defense of him self, which really wasn't that. It was more of a sermon, Stephen's sermon to the religious council leading Israel. We're going to finish that sermon today, but just to make sure you're up to speed on where we're at in this study in Acts, we were introduced to this man named Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He was the first named deacon of the Jerusalem church, and he was said to be a man of full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And since he was a deacon, we know that he was willing to serve that was the role. And he was also, but he wasn't only a servant in, in physical things, he was also a powerful minister in the work of the Lord. Acts 6 and verse 8 said, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And because he did that, because he did these great wonders, these great miracles among the people, he was treated just like the apostles were when they did the same thing. So that means false accusations were made against him. And he was brought before the council of Israel's religious leaders to be put on trial. And he had been falsely accused of, of blaspheming God, of blaspheming Moses, of blaspheming the law, and of blaspheming the temple, the core tenets. Those are you know, kind of the core tenets of Judaism. And as we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 7, Stephen was asked by the high priest if the allegations were true. And he was ready to give an answer. And I think he had been waiting on it. And what an answer he gave, one that extends all the way down through verse 53 uh, of this chapter. And his answer, like I said, it didn't exactly, you know, the question was, you know, essentially, what's your answer to these allegations? What do you have to say for yourself about this? And he didn't directly answer that question. Now, he, he does, and we've talked about that some, we'll talk about it more today. He does, but it's, but it's kind of, um, you know, it's kind of subtle in how he, how he answers it. What he does is lays out a rather specific and detailed outline of the nation of Israel's history. And he does that because he's trying to accomplish a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to give those leaders of Israel one final opportunity to accept Christ as their Messiah and bring in the kingdom, and that's why title last week's sermon, The Final Straw. And so I got creative today and named it The Final Straw Part 2. <laughs> I only have so much brain power. But, but it's part two, truly, because it's just a continuation of his message that he started last week. But there is 
a bit of a natural breaking point where we stopped last Sunday at verse 36. That wasn't just it wasn't random why I stopped there. There's a, he he kind of transitions to what we'll see today. And in those first 36 verses, and I think I put this on your outline sheet, but in this, those first 36 verses, Stephen was really outlining what Israel had missed. He wanted them to see what they had missed. And he explained that they had really missed God's plan throughout the entire Old Testament. And they had missed it because they had missed God's pictures, and they had missed their own pattern. And Stephen set out to reveal that, reveal God's plan for a seed and a land and and how that is such a a key part of the kingdom. And that started all the way back with Abraham. And then he wanted them to recognize the pictures, specifically how Joseph and Moses both pictured Christ and they were deliverers of the nation of Israel. And, And if they could just see that, maybe they could receive the pattern and in doing so receive Christ And the pattern for Israel was rejection the first time and acceptance the second time. And we saw that all the way back with Abraham, the father of Israel. And that set a pattern for how they acted after Abraham. So that was true of Joseph. It was true of Moses. They were both rejected at first, but accepted later. And and it's going to happen again. It'll be true of Christ. We looked at this last week, but at his first coming, he was rejected. John 1.11, he came unto his own. And his own received him not. But he will be accepted at his second coming. And Stephen was trying to get them to accept him and receive him then. But that didn't happen. And those were, you know, well, that was all that we looked at last week. Those were our outline points for last week. And so it was really focused on what they missed and what they were missing. But in part two of Stephen's sermon, what we're going to look at today, he moves on from what they missed and he begins to outline very clearly how they messed up. Where and how they went wrong as a nation. So much so that it ultimately led to their captivity under the Babylonians. And and that never, ever should have happened. They had promises from God that he would sustain them. He would make them the head of the nations. He would continually bless them. There's just this one small caveat. They had to do what he said. They didn't get to do it their own way. They had to do it God's way. Deuteronomy 28, 1, it says, And it shall come to pass, If thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. But as of course we know, that, that didn't happen. And they fell under captivity. Because they didn't hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord. And God had warned them about that. Deuteronomy 28, it's a long chapter full of all the blessings if they obey and all the curses if they disobey. And one of the curses was losing their position as the head of the nations. Deuteronomy 28, 25 says, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies if they don't obey, if they don't diligently listen to his voice. Thou shalt go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And thou shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's what happened. And they were scattered throughout the earth for, for well over 2,000 years. And until, you know, something started to happen in 1948. And they started to come back to the land. And, you know, God's word's always true. And God always keeps his promises. Both the ones that are positive to us and, and both the ones that are negative. And their, Israel's disobedience, it led to their captivity, it led to their spiritual blindness, eventually to the place where they rejected Christ because they didn't see him. They didn't recognize him as their Messiah. And so Stephen very clearly and pointedly shows them how they messed up, how they've messed this up all the way through that, their past, how they had missed the mark. And he does that so that they can see how they're messing up in their present day. In Acts chapter 7, he's like, guys, you're doing it all again. Your forefathers have done this from the beginning. And they've messed up in these different ways. And you're doing the exact same thing today and you're going to miss him again. And he's trying to warn them. So we're going to continue on in Stephen's masterpiece. And it really is. It really is that. It is a masterpiece. It's so much more than just a, a random documenting of Israel's history. 
He was very strategic in what he said and how he said it. I told you last week, he, very intentional on what he said and what he didn't say. And so we're gonna, we saw that last week. We're going to see that again today. But we're going to pick this up in verse 37 of Acts chapter 7. So we don't have time to, you know, I gave you the, the recap of what we talked about last week. We don't have time to read it. You can go, if you weren't here, you can go back and read that on your own. So we're just going to pick it up where we left off. Verse 37, we'll read down through verse 53. In Acts 7, 37, the Bible says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them. And in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, Figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to build a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now who ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. All right, let's pray. That was a lot, I know. So, so thanks for following along, but let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just thank you again for today, and we just um, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you be with us today, and I pray that, that you move me aside and that your Holy Spirit uh, speaks clearly this morning. And, and Lord, I just pray that you work on our hearts where we need it. We are all here and in different spots of not only our spiritual walk, but we're in, in different spots mentally and spiritually and, and dealing with different things. And so, Lord, I just pray that, that you touch us each individually. As the hymn, old hymn says, or pass, don't pass us by. And I ask you to not pass us by this morning, and we need to hear from you. And, Lord, I just pray that, that in that, everything that is said is true to your word. I pray that you're honored and glorified through it, and, and you use it as only you can to change us more and more into your image. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, and as I've already kind of given you a recap, the first 36 verses of this chapter and, and Stephen's message traces Israel's history from Abraham to Moses. And in these last 17 verses, he moves from Moses, he picks it up with Moses, and moves basically to their, to their current day. He went through Solomon, he went through David, Solomon, the building of the temple, into their captivity, and then he, just, then he just addresses them, you know, he's stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the hearts, and he's, he's up to their, their current day. And it's in this section, this Moses to their current day, that he chooses to emphasize how they messed up, how their, their nation has messed up to the point that, where they're at today, that they missed Christ. And here's where it starts. He's going to point out three specific ways that they've really missed the mark and that they've messed things up. And, and it starts with, with following a counterfeit God. They stumbled because they followed a counterfeit God. This has been Israel's problem throughout their history. You see, we read back in Deuteronomy 28 that God promised Israel countless blessings if they followed him and followed his words. But on the flip side, he promised countless curses if they didn't. And that message was through Moses. Deuteronomy 28 was shortly before his death, which is re recorded in Deuteronomy 34. So at the end of Deuteronomy, they're at a time in their history where things are going well. 
And, the, and it hasn't always been that way, but things are going well, and they're moving into the land, right? Moses isn't going to take them. Joshua will be, will be the one to take them into the land. They're a great warrior and conqueror, and they're going to see great success for a while. So they're at a time where Moses is like, okay, got, you're, we're, we're, we're getting to where we need to be. We just have to keep it. We have to keep moving forward following what God has to say. But, of course, it doesn't stay that way. And like I said, it didn't even start that way. They struggled with doing things God's way throughout their history, including in their time in their wilderness. That's why the original generation didn't get to see the land. It was only Joshua and Caleb. And Stephen lays out their problem in the wilderness and beyond. And it started with them following a counterfeit God. And, and when I say a counterfeit God, it's throughout their history, it's multiple counterfeit gods, but it's really just one. It's really a God. It's, it's a satanic God that they're following every time. But I want you to see this. Look back at, we'll read verses 37 through 43. This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me, him shall ye hear. He's like, okay, listen, I'm about to die. I'm passing on. But but there's going to be someone else that's coming. We looked at that verse last week. We'll look at it again. You need to be looking for him. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. And so Moses, this is Stephen, quoting Moses, and he's saying, this was the one, that one was with me in Mount Sinai. The one you need to be looking for, I spent time with him. Uh, you need to be looking for him. He gave me the lively oracles. He gave me the law. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, ye have offered, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And there's, there's a lot to unpack there, a lot we won't even get into. If, again, I'll, I'll get into some of the details, particularly like with Moloch and the Star of Remphan, those sorts of things in, in our LFBI class. But we don't just have time to get into all that today. But I, I do want to pull out some things of particular note for you. And first of all, in verse 37, Stephen quotes Moses saying that, again, Israel needs to look for a new prophet like him, but not him. And, and I showed you this verse that Stephen's quoting from last week, but let me show you again, Deuteronomy 18:15. Lord thy God shall raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. And of course, that was Jesus. He was with him in the mount. But instead of heeding Moses' counsel, the children of Israel were still holding on to Moses as their main prophet. And this is important to our point. You need to understand this. Because he did bring them the law, the old covenant. But they had missed Christ in the new covenant, who Moses told them not to miss. And in that sense, even Moses himself had become a counterfeit God to Israel. Now, that wasn't Moses' fault. He, he, he shouldn't be blamed for it. But he wasn't the prophet that they were supposed to be looking for. He was a great man that God used mightily in their lives, but they needed to be able to move past Moses in order to be able to see Jesus. And they weren't able to do that. They accused Stephen of blaspheming Moses, like Moses was a god. Because people can say a lot of bad things about you and me. We can be lied, lied about, we can be talked about, all of it. But only God can be blasphemed. So they viewed Moses improperly. And again, it wasn't Moses' fault. He was trying to lead them the best he knew how through a tough situation in the wilderness. And, and he had delivered them. And many people looked up to him. He was the called-out leader of a called-out assembly. And that is why the, that's what the use of the word church means in verse 38. This trips a lot of people up. The use of the word church 
with respect to the Old Testament in the wilderness, right? In verse 38. And, and so textual critics will criticize the use of that word and, and say that, that that's, that's wrong. That's an improper use of the word. But listen, there are no mistakes in our Bible. Every word of God is pure, so the word church is absolutely correct here. In fact, it helps us understand the biblical definition of church in the New Testament. Because in the Bible, we, definition is def, it's, the words are defined by usage. Right? That's how we can understand. The Bible is self-defining and self-interpreting. You just got to compare Scripture with Scripture, and you got to put it all together, and the Bible is going to give you the definition. So when you compare Acts 7.38 with Acts 14.27... It says, and when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And so what we learn, by definition, is that a, a church is just a called-out assembly. Like Many of you already know this. A church is a called-out assembly. Now, understand, the church, which is the body of Christ, us today, that's something more specific. I mean, even the church that we've seen so far in Acts is different than the church of today. It was in the infant stages. We talked about some of that when we went through Acts chapter 2. Their message was different than ours. But a church, the word church, is just a called out assembly for a specific purpose. And that's what the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit inserted the word church in Acts 7.38 to give us not only the definition, but also the picture. You see, the children of Israel were called out of Egypt. Just like as Christians, we are called out of the world. And they assembled together after God saved them from Pharaoh, just like we are to do. And God didn't leave them not knowing what to do when they assembled. The angels spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the lively oracles to give to the children of Israel. Just like today, we have God's word. And, and so there's a picture that God, listen, every word of God is pure. You have to know that. And it's very specific. And so in, in, when things are confusing like that, and it's like, there's no church in the Old Testament, allow the Bible to define the words and allow God to show you the pictures that he's trying to show. And, and what we saw then in verse 38 is that the angel of the Lord gave those lively oracles, gave God's word to Moses. And the angel was the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself. We've talked about that before. And he gave Moses the law. And that's what, that's what the, those lively oracles are. Stephen calls them lively oracles for a reason. Because in calling them that, first of all, he's answering the accusation against his stance on the law. Stephen is saying, I love the law of God so much, I believe they are God's very words. And that is how they are described throughout Scripture. The word oracle is an important word. So Paul uses it, for example, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, the law of God. And it's an important word because they were words spoken by God, therefore connected to God's mouth. It is where we get our English word oral. An oracle is an oral presentation that can be written down. This one came from the Lord. These lively oracles were, were an oral presentation of the Lord that were written down to Moses. And because they were from the Lord, that's what makes them lively. Because he is the living word. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is quick. And, and that doesn't mean fast, you know, it's like, shoo, shoo, shoo. I mean, it, it is that probably. But the word quick means alive, to be quickened. That's the Bible definition. So the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing center of soul and spirit and the joints of marrow. And listen, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How could something not alive be a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? It's absolutely a live book, and we don't always view it that way. We view it as historical. Man, every time you open up the pages of this book, you're interacting with the living Word of God. It's something important to understand and, and, and have that concept in your head. This book is alive. And it works on you. It, it gets in you and is a discerner of your thoughts and the intents of your heart. And if you'll allow it to change you and mold you more and more into his image, 
man, it'll do that work. You just have to allow it. And it certainly discerned the thoughts and intents of the heart of children of Israel back in the wilderness, and their hearts worked good because Acts 7.39, the very next verse says, to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. You see, they didn't leave the wilderness. Physically, they stayed. But their hearts went back to Egypt. Their hearts went back to the world. Man, that's a dangerous place to be, and that's a place that we can find ourselves in all too often if we're not careful. And we still show up on Sundays, and, and maybe we still spend some time even with the Lord, and, and maybe we put a spiritual front on and, and act like what we're doing is for good reason. But if the truth be told, our heart has turned back to Egypt. Because that's really what we desire. We really desire the things of this world and, and all that comes with it. We have to be so careful. We'll talk about this more later on. You see, Israel always had a heart problem. And we do too. And that heart problem always drew them away from God and onto the next new shiny thing to follow. And it was always counterfeit gods. That's what Stephen starts laying out in great detail. We had to lay a little bit of foundation there. But that's what he starts laying out in great detail in verse 40. Saying unto Aaron... Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we want not what's becoming. We don't know what happened to him. He had been up on Mount Sinai with the Lord. And in Exodus 32.1, it's interesting. It says that when he delayed to come down the mount, he didn't even want to stop spending time with the Lord. He spent 40 days with him. And then in those 40 days, they lose their mind. And like, we don't even know what happened. Wow, we don't think we're ever going to see him again. So what, what, do we, what can we do? All we can do is build a golden calf. Aaron, build us a golden calf. Verse 41, they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And again, Moses was on the mount getting those lively oracles and Israel got impatient and frustrated waiting on him. So what was their response to this situation? Let's make another God so we can serve him. Never mind that in doing so, they were breaking the, the first two of the Ten Commandments they had just been given shortly before that, and back in Exodus chapter 20. Like, you know, this story goes on down in Exodus 32, 33, 34. But in Exodus chapter 20, when God first met with Moses for the law, he says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. That's what they had just been told, given those commandments. And what's the first thing they run to? Let's build us a golden calf. But listen, we, you know, we'll look at that and think, Man, those foolish Jews, and we are the same people. We do the same thing all the time. We end up in a situation we don't like and that we don't fully understand. And instead of sitting and waiting on the Lord, we grow impatient and try to take things into our own hands. And listen, there, I've showed you this before, and I'm not, I'm not even going to take time to show you now, but there are two competing patterns that, for our life that you see in Scripture. And, and one of the, the first one is laid out in Romans chapter 5, and, and it, is, it is patience, experience, hope. When you're facing temptation, when you're facing trials, there's a path. Patience, experience, hope, and interestingly enough, Experience is defined in Romans 15, 4, as comfort of scriptures. You see that same pattern there, comfort of scriptures. The other, the other track is found in James chapter 1. And it is lust, sin, death. In the same context, facing temptation and facing trials. And, and the key to where you're going to end up is the choice between the first word in each list, patience or lust. And we don't usually think of those two words being opposite of each other, but in this context they absolutely are because lust is about the temporal, what I need now. 
What do I, what can I get now? What am I lust? I'm lusting for something. And I have to have it now. But patience is about the eternal. Because patience leads to hope, the hope that we have in Christ, that one day everything will be okay. That he's going to be true to his word. But lust is about now, and it's about your will, it's about your desires, it's about you. And in those situations, guess what? You are the counterfeit God. And I'm the counterfeit God when I do that. You see, we're no better than Israel. It's the same. We do the exact same thing. It just looks different today. And, and we think that we make it look more sophisticated, so it's okay. It's not okay. It's the same. Verse 41 says they rejoiced in the work of their own hands because they took things into their own hands. And they didn't only take things into their own hands. They liked it. They liked the control that it came with. And we'll talk about that in, in, in our next point. They rejoiced in it. And we do the same thing. We do it all the time. And God hates it. And so God's response is to give them up. Verse 42, then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tab tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. And, and we see this for us in Romans chapter 1. God gave Israel, he gave them over to worship the host of heaven or the creation or the creature more than the creator. And Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And then Paul goes on to further describe these men and how they act. And then he goes and he says this about them in verses 24 and 25. And you can, you can go from Romans 1.18 to down to verse 27. We just don't have time to look at it all. But verses 24 and 25. Wherefore God also gave them up. It's the same. It's the same thing. Gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie. And what they do? They worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's the exact same as Acts chapter 7. And it's been the exact same throughout history. With Israel, with us, you see it in 2 Kings chapter 17. And this ties us back into Acts chapter 7. But it says, And they left all the commandments, of, in verse 16, they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven. And serve Baal. They worship the, the gods of the universe. They worship the stars. They worshiped the creation more than the creature, more than the creator. Then look at verse 17. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold them to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And, and what we just read there in, in 2 Kings 17 17 is a reference to Moloch in Acts 7.43. And, and he said that there was a tabernacle of Moloch. And that tabernacle of Moloch included the sacrificing of children that made them to pass through the fire. They literally sacrificed children in perverted and demonic ways. And listen, it is a really, really bad sign for a society when children aren't protected. And, and Stephen is quoting Amos chapter 5 here, verses 25 through 27, that says, ye, Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch, Moloch and Sheun, that's Remphan, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. This is, this is where this all leads. Just slowly giving yourself over and, 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 and turning your heart back to Egypt. Even if you're still physically present, if you turn your heart back over to Egypt, this is slowly where this all leads. And it's the worst of the worst. And so God asked them, were you really offering all those sacrifices to me all those years? 
all those slain beasts in the wilderness, were you really sacrificing to me? Because your heart was after Egypt, but you're, you're, you're still showing up. So was that for me or was that for you? What were you doing it for? And, and again, that followed Israel in the wilderness throughout their history because what I read in 2 Kings 17 was possible because of something King Solomon did in 1 Kings chapter 11. He made a really bad decision. Because why? Because his heart was drawn back to Egypt. And in 1 Kings eleven seven said, Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. He built a high place. For, for Molech, for the sacrificing of children. And, and God was saying, how could you do that and serve me at the same time? And the answer is, you can't. Because their heart wasn't right. You can't have it both ways. God said, you can't worship me and Baal. You can't offer sacrifices to God and Moloch at the same time. You can't do that. That doesn't work. Your heart is in one place or the other. Because those don't go together. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. What Egypt provides. But listen. Again, we think it's more sophisticated today, and so we've justified in our minds that it's okay, but we are right back there, as certainly as a society. We're certainly back there as a society, and even as a church, and not our church, but the church as, as, as a whole. Just trying to ride the middle, trying to, to, to make the appearance of serving God while our heart is in Egypt. And, and what that results in, and where that ends, eventually, is the sacrificing of our children. And maybe, you know, we're not going to put them on an altar and watch them pass through the fire in a very literal sense. But we're giving them to the world just the same. Just the same. And we're sacrificing them because our hearts are still in Egypt. And our children are the one paying the price. And the next generation coming behind us, if they don't serve the Lord, if they don't love the Lord, don't be surprised. It's our fault. Because we're giving them over. And we're sacrificing them in the exact same way. You can't do both. You can't serve God and Molech. And you say, I would never do that to my children. I just wish that was true. We need to understand the severity of not hearing and obeying God's words. And the perversion and the demonic activity that is out there coming after our children. Because if you don't adhere to God's book... You never know where you might end up. And you might end up in a place you never thought you would. I bet you if you would have asked Israel when they were getting ready to enter the land in great victory, will there ever come a day that you'll sacrifice your children for false gods? They would have said, you are crazy. Look at what God's done. He's brought us out of Egypt. He sustained us through the wilderness, and now we're getting the land. It wasn't but a few hundred years later. But they're literally burning their children. Don't fall for it. Don't follow the counterfeit gods of this world of sports, of popularity, of wealth, of materialism, of hedonism, whatever your God is. It's dangerous. Take that lesson from Israel's history. And that was Stephen's message to the council. The real God has shown up. You already killed him. But he wants to come back. 
Why don't you accept him now? Don't miss him now. So they followed a counterfeit God. This was their problem. It's how they always messed up. And I'm, I'm taking way too long on that. We got to keep going. I did not realize it's 1140. Um, so then second, not only did they miss Christ because they followed other gods, they also messed up and missed Christ because they focused on confining God. They followed a counterfeit God. They followed Satan in, the, in, in, in demonic ways. But they focused on confining God. And for Israel, they confined God to the temple. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before their face of our fathers. I'll explain that word Jesus, by the way, in just a second. Um, under the days of David who found favor before God and decided to build a tabernacle or a temple for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? So they had the tabernacle. They built a tabernacle in the wilderness. And they brought that into the promised land with them. This is what these verses are saying. And like I said, it's interesting because in verse 45, our King James translators translated Joshua as Jesus, right? He's talking about Joshua, which our fathers also came and brought in with Jesus or Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles, into Canaan, into the promised land. But again, every word of God's pure. It's absolutely a proper translation. And so, again, people will use this and say, well, they, they just messed up there, you know. And it just depends on your use of whether it's Greek or English. Those are the same. And Jesus is the English. Joshua is used in Greek. But no, God was trying to do more than that. It wasn't just, oh, well, I think he should have used this word or maybe he used the wrong word. No, of course the Bible is correct. The Holy Spirit wanted us to see the picture. And the picture is that the book of Joshua is a type of the second coming of Christ. With Christ as the victor. And, and again, Stephen has used that word on purpose. He wanted them to see the connection because they were at the verge of it if they would have just accepted him. With Jesus as the victor, not dying on a cross, coming back on a white horse to rule and reign victorious. And there's so many pictures in that book, we don't have time. But back to the tabernacle. It stayed, it followed them all the way until David desired to build God a temple. He couldn't do it. He was a man of war, but his son Solomon did. But then Stephen hits them with, with what they would have considered a sucker punch. In verse 48, he said, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And this would have been very offensive to the council because this is, again, this is, they've made all of these things their gods. And so the temple became their god. And he's, but but he was, Moses, or Stephen was saying the same thing Solomon had said. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods. But who's able to build him a house? Seeing the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? You see, the tabernacle and then the temple always represented the presence and the glory of God. And they were the means by which the nation of Israel communed with God through the system of sacrifices set up under the law. But listen, God never was and never will be confined to a building or a tent. He's way bigger than that. And the children of Israel took great pride in what they built for God. They took great pride in what they built for God. But it ultimately became more important than a relationship with God himself. And it's a risk for us, too, to take the good things we're doing for God and turn them into idols and, and, and focus on what we are building instead of what God is building through us. And it's subtle, but it's elevating ourselves over God. And that is, listen to me, that is just human nature because we want to put God in a box. Because if we put God in a box, we can control him. And going back to our last point, it's because truthfully we want to be God. We want to be able to set the rules. But an encased God, a housed idol, a confined spirit is the center of every pagan religion in the world. Because if you are able 
to box God in, then he won't interfere in your life or your politics or your business or your pleasure. You see, as, God, as long as God is locked up in a temple, then he can't see what you're doing when you're doing your own thing. And this concept of housing or confining God is warned against throughout Scripture. Listen, the builder of the house is more important than the house. The builder of the house is more important than the house. Hebrews chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 3 through 6 says, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, speaking of Jesus, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And listen, we know this to be true in our heads, but I want to say it and I want to show it to you anyway. God is the builder of everything. Psalm 102, verse 15. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, and for him. That's a key phrase for us to understand, including ourselves. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And again, we know all these things. But the truth is, I think we lose sight of them sometimes in the midst of our life, in the midst of dealing with struggle and dealing with the trials that we have to face. So, for example, we might get mad at God for what we're going through. A very bad situation, and I'm not... There are terrible situations out there, and I'm not trying to minimize any of them. And they're hard, very, very difficult to manage and get through in this physical life. But we turn and we get mad at God because in our mind, we apply human logic and we say, well, God could have stopped that. God didn't have to allow that to happen in my life. Why did he do that? Why is he treating me this way? Why is he being unfair to me? But when we say those things, we just simply lose sight that we are the creation and he is the creator. And how can the creation get mad at the one who brought them into existence? That we were created by him and for him. How does the creation then flip the script to say the creator should have done this? The creator should not have done that. Can you listen to what you're saying when you say that? Who are you and who am I to say what God should or shouldn't do? He's the creator. And we are the creation. And he maintains our very life at every moment. It is God's air that we breathe. It's by God's mercy that we wake up in the morning. And yet, we want to be in charge. So we still try to confine him. Just like Israel did. And it led to their downfall. And it will lead to ours as well. And this is another interesting concept to me. Because, again, we're more sophisticated. So maybe we don't define or confine God to a building like Israel did. We understand that. But we'll confine him to a calendar. We'll only give him Sunday. Or maybe even only Sunday morning. How much of your calendar does, does God get? You spend time with him every day? Listen, we want to be able to do the things we want to be able to do. And there are only 168 hours in a week. How many can I give to God? Or maybe we'll confine him to a city. And, and what I mean by that is we'll confine him to the city in which we live. But when we go out of town on a business trip or a vacation, look out. 
God can't see me there because I've confined him to my city. But listen, you know it doesn't work that way. We're the temple of God. If you are a Christian, God lives in you just like he lives in me. That's what Stephen was trying to get them to understand, that the temple, the way that, that they worshiped in the temple was going away. You see, the right approach is that God has complete control of everything you do and everywhere you go because he has complete control of you. So God shouldn't be confined by you. He should be in control of you. We shouldn't ever try to confine him. We should never try to say what he should or shouldn't do. He should be in complete control of us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this just goes back to God being the builder and the maker of everything. He's the author and finisher of our faith. In Revelation 1.8, Jesus said about himself, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So let's live that truth and stay on the right side of God and fellowship with him because that's what Israel didn't do. Let's learn from their mistakes. And Stephen wanted the council to see that so that they could see how they forgot how they always countered God. They had forgot that they always countered God. And this is our last point. They forgot how they always countered God. Unfortunately, Israel was consistently in opposition to God in ways we've seen and in other ways that we haven't even looked at. But they didn't think so. They thought they were doing right. They thought they were holding the line. That's what the council thought. And Stephen tells them with words that, that they weren't, with words that ultimately get him killed. He does not sugarcoat his message. Look at what he says, starting in verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your father did, so do ye. Everything that, everything that I had just laid out, everything that Stephen had just laid out, he was like, in all the ways that they resisted God, that they resisted the Holy Ghost, you're doing the exact same thing. You do it all the same too. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now, you have now been the betrayers and the murderers. It's like, they, messed, they, they killed all the prophets, you killed the main one. You killed Jesus, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And listen, Stephen was very direct, but he took his lead from Jesus on how to deal with this group of people. Because here's what Jesus said to them, Matthew 23, 33, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? He said that to the Pharisees, who would have been a part of this group. You see, this, you know, the loving Jesus that loves everybody, yeah, I mean, he didn't sugarcoat things either. Not to those who were in opposition of him and countered him. And Israel countered and resisted God by, first of all, being stiff-necked. And that just means they wouldn't bow to God. We bow our heads, we close our eyes in reverence to God as a symbol. But a stiff neck won't do that. No, God doesn't deserve our obeisance. And God said this described Israel all the way back to the time of the wilderness wanderings, Exodus 32.9. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Even their beloved Moses called them a stiff-necked people in, in multiple places. Exodus, one example, Exodus 34, verses 8 and 9. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let, uh, uh, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for thine inheritance. And again, just like our other points, this followed Israel throughout their history. It wasn't only a problem in the wilderness. Hezekiah warned them about it to no avail. 2 Chronicles 30, verses 7 and 8. And be not like your fathers, like your brethren, which trespass against the Lord God of your fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation, as ye see. Now be ye not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. And of course, that didn't happen. And this is such a problem because being stiff-necked is related to rebellion. Being stiff-necked is related to rebellion, to being rebellious. 
not willing to bow or even turn to follow the Lord. Moses, speaking again in Deuteronomy 31, gives us that connection. He says, For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I'm yet alive and with you this day, you've been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? But Stephen didn't stop there. He also said they had uncircumcised hearts and ears. And listen, those would have been harsh words because physical circumcision was obviously a big deal to Israel. And it was as if Stephen was making light of that tradition. But this concept of having an uncircumcised heart is talked about throughout the Old Testament as well. Because why? Because they had throughout their history historically countered and be in opposition to God. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest thy fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Even Paul used this same reference. Romans 2.29, But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. And again, we don't have time. We certainly don't have time. Man, we really don't have time. Um, but this is getting to the transition to, to, the, new test, to, the, to the new covenant that God's trying to do. Um, but listen, either way, Old Testament, Old Covenant, church age, new, um, you know, new Testament, end of the new covenant with Israel in the millennium, the circumcision of the heart was an act of the will. Now, with us... It is something that God does. It is a circumcision made without hands, discussing Colossians 2, right? But either way, it doesn't happen unless there is submission to God, being willing to open and make our heart available to him. And, and, and I understand there are, you know, there's all ages in here, and I'm not trying to be crude, but, but the, the picture is that the, there's an opening and an availability of the heart, that it's not guarded and protected. And that's what, that's what God wanted of their hearts. And, and Israel could never figure it out. Stephen tried, but he couldn't get them to see it. I mean, they had basically killed everyone that warned them about it except Moses. That's what he said in verse 32. What prophet haven't your fathers persecuted and killed? And the council had already made the mistake with Jesus. They're about to make the very same mistake with Stephen because they kill him at the end of this chapter. And it all goes back to where we started, and we got to run here. All because they didn't keep the law. All because they didn't keep God's word. Stephen ends with that key, verse 53. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. It's where it starts and that's where it ends. It all comes down to that. The following of God's word. And it comes down to that for us as well. Whether we are following a counterfeit God, including ourselves, or whether we're focused on confining God and limiting the access he has to a certain part of our life, or whether we just forget how much. We counter and forget, fight against God in our daily lives. When we are living in that world, it all comes down to not keeping God's word, to forsaking the truth that he has so graciously provided us. And like Stephen said in verses 39 and 51, that's an issue of the heart. Israel had a heart problem. So let me ask you, do you? How's your heart today? Is it open to hearing and receiving God's word? Are you willing to follow the true God? Will you let God be God and every man a liar, even if that man's yourself? And just live your life by what God's word says. There are great promises that come with doing that. And there are great consequences to not. So instead of countering him, will you decide this morning to give up and give in and surrender your life to him? Israel couldn't do it in Acts chapter 7. But really, the only question that matters today is, can you? I hope you can. All to God's glory. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. And again, as we close out this, this, this day like we do every Sunday, singing praises to the Lord, I just want you to contemplate, you know, what you heard or what God spoke to you today. And, you know, and the, one of those messages that was a little bit heavier. And, but listen, we need those. We need the truth of God's word in our life to get us to, to really think and, and realize where we're at and if you're not where you should be, and if you've been following a counterfeit God, even if it's of yourself, if your heart's gone back to the world, if you've confined God to only certain areas of your life, man, why don't you uncircumcise your heart? Get your heart right with him. And so, so make today that day. And like I said, you can always, like we always say, you can come to this altar, you can make your pew an altar. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know 
Jesus Christ as their Savior, you should meet him today. If you have any questions about that, don't know. If you were to die today, if you don't know where you spend eternity, we'd love to help get that settled in your life and show you from the Bible what it means to be saved. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us uh, so, so well um, and, and, and knowing how to take care of us and uh, being a great creator. Lord, we thank you again for all that you do, and I pray that, that we honor you with our lives, we honor you with our words, we honor you with our actions, and um, just thank you for the opportunity to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.